Welcome to the American Institute of Stress's official podcast, Finding Contentment. The goal of this podcast is to highlight new information about stress and stress management techniques. While we understand that stress is a very personalized issue and different for everyone, we hope to help you find your own way to contentment. Hey, greetings, everyone. Welcome back to Finding Contentment. This is your host and executive director for the American Institute of Stress, Will Heckman. Thanks, everybody, for joining us again today. Hopefully, you've been uh, joining us in the past and you will be joining us for our future podcasts. For those of you who are joining us for the very first time, these podcasts focus on stress and stress-related issues. So remember to follow us at stress.org and send in those reviews and comments. And by the way, we have some really great news. Our long-awaited documentary, Mismatch, Your Brain Under Stress, has been released. That's been two years in the making. Now, Mismatch is a revolutionary documentary series that explores stress in our society and what we can do about it. Stress is literally the spice of life. You've heard me say that before. And it has been said, if you don't experience stress, you you don't feel alive. Stressors are everywhere. They come at you from the environment you live, work, and play in, from other people, and mostly from inside your own mind. Stress is defined as our reaction to change. Like everything else, you can learn how to master your stress and live more peacefully, productive, and a happier life mismatch your brain under stress it will tell you how also mismatch is a six-part documentary featuring some of the world's leading experts on stress their collective experience stretches from the very first experiments done on the mind-body connection to the latest research in unraveling the unconscious mind as entertaining as it is informative mismatch teaches us what stress is and how to master it So I encourage you all to go to stress.org and to find out how you can watch it. Just go to stress.org. And by the way, great time to become a member at the American Institute of Stress because all our members get to watch that as well as other videos for free. So go to stress.org and see that. Today, we're going to be discussing something that's near and dear to my heart, and that's about the ever-increasing stress our students are facing. We're going to be hearing from Dr. Jeannie Janot. She is the author of an incredible book called uh, Disintegrating Students, Super Smart and Falling Apart. Uh, In her book, she explores an increasingly common phenomenon. And we have these bright, successful students who suddenly hit a wall. And when they find their grades falling, They find themselves, without warning, in a very stressful, emotional upheaval. God, I've seen it a bunch of times. We know that a certain level of stress is normal. That's a given. You know, and positive stress responses from events such as, you know, changing schools or and meeting new friends, they can actually help students learn and grow. Some stress will even help students achieve better success. For instance, that report that's coming up, that project, they feel that stress, they do better at it. But when our kids are exposed to repeated stressful events without the tools to manage these stressful feelings, well, it can become emotionally and physically toxic and it may do long-term damage. And another issue is that unlike adults who can usually communicate about how this stress impacts their lives and Children and teens may not recognize or even have the words to describe how they're feeling. 
or they may simply choose not to talk about it. You know, teens don't want to share or younger children don't want to share everything that's going on in their lives with their parents. However, parents and teachers, they can watch for short term behaviors and physical symptoms that have become apparent when stress becomes a problem. And since age plays a major role in how stress affects us, we need some guidance on how to help our students. And that's where the American Institute of Stress comes in. And so I said before, today we're going to be talking to Dr. Janine Jano. Um, in her book, The Disintegrated Student, she, uh, by the way, she holds a master's degree in school psychology and a doctorate in child and developmental psychology. She has over 25 years experience working with children, teenagers, young adults in both public and private schools uh, from preschool through college. In addition, she teaches college level psychology courses and freshman seminars. And Janine is, is very passionate about identifying the root causes of issues that may be holding students back and customizing strategies to achieve success with an emphasis on physical and mental wellness and how their parents can provide the support necessary. And that's very important. By the way, her book will be available in July, and but you can pre-order it right now uh, wherever books are sold. Of course, the Amazon being the biggest one, you can look there right now. They have a Kindle and a paperback version you can pre-order. But if you'd like to find out some more information, just go to JanineJanot.com um, and you'll find out about her and about the book and about all the things she does. So join me in welcoming Janine. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks. Well, it's great to be here. Well, thank you. So, you know, I read your book and I really loved it. I was an educator for almost uh, 30 years and boy, did it hit home. I mean, I, I've... <laughs> I, yeah, I've seen it happen so many times. And so many times uh, I thought about what was going on. And, and I'm thinking that nobody's even addressing it or paying attention. So uh, after reading your book, it really you know, hit a chord in me because uh, I was so happy to see that it was being addressed. And, and can you tell us, if you became a school psychologist, right? And then you went on to write the book. How did that all happen? How did you get, first of all, how'd you go into school psychology and, and then write the book? Um, that's the program I got accepted to after getting a bachelor's in psychology, to be honest with you. And, and I picked it because, you know, I needed a, a master's level you know, degree to get a job. Mm -hmm. And because I always was fascinated by development and by kids and I love school. So I was like, oh, school psychology. And I did that for a while and I got an awful lot out of it. But then I ended up raising kids for about 15 years. So I have three children, um, my youngest of which is a senior in high school right now, getting ready to graduate. And so I, I did that. And what I ended up seeing, I got this really cool opportunity. Actually, I started, I taught preschool when my daughter was in, my youngest is in preschool and then um, went to teaching college. So I kind of really <laughs> jumped big time there. So I went to teach in college. And at the time I started teaching college, I was uh, raising an elementary school student, a middle school student, a high school student, and here I am with my college students. And so I had this incredible bird's eye view of the whole educational process. 
and it really scared me because mm. I was seeing the anxiety creeping all the way down into the elementary school. I was seeing the parent freak out factor starting, you know, kindergarten, first grade. And, and I was seeing the end result, these students coming into college, just so overwhelmed, lacking so many skills. And that's what, you know, kind of, it was like, oh, I really need to do something. And so I would kind of help my college students and they would say, I wish I would have known this in high school. Hmm. So that's what got me thinking, well, why can't I be a person who helps students with those skills before it becomes, you know, too much of an issue. So I, I work with middle school, high school and college students on those skills um, that are really helpful to manage the overwhelm and the, um, you know, the issues that they're facing and the stressors they're facing. And that became my coaching business. And through that, that's where the disintegrating student came out of because the students who were coming to me were not what I expected. They were these really, really gifted, high achieving kids who had always just done wonderfully in school, very, you know, just the easiest to teach, the easiest to parent, and they were falling apart, like serious crashing and burning. And what I realized, and that's where I coined the term the disintegrating student, there were lots of factors that were driving this, but they were pretty consistent across kids. Um, and so that's how the disintegrating student came about, because I'd have this conversation over and over again about what I was seeing. And parents were so, um, and even educators were just so surprised and it all, but it all made so much sense. And I thought, well, I need to have the conversation in a wider forum. And that's what, what I had never intended to write a book in my life, but that's <laughs> why I wrote it. <laughs> it's, you know, it's funny, but at one time I was the person in charge of providing professional development to ed educators in different schools, high school level. And I would look for something that would show teachers how to address the, the issues that students were having with stress. Some of them were serious. You know, I, I, I don't want to get too deeply into it, but some students, you know, act out physically, besides behaviorally, all of that due to stress. And we had nothing in place to really address that go see a guidance counselor. It doesn't always work. Right. So I was so, uh, you know, and we, and I've, I've sat down actually before and have had conversations with school psychologists. First of all, there's not even one per school. You guys are spread all over the place, which was so hard. And I'm happy to see that people are starting to realize that our kids are so stressed out that it's having a big effect. I think people forget once you get out, once you graduate and you're in your job, now your job is stressful, but you forget how stressful your students could be. You have kids. I have a daughter who was like number three in her school and, and I, God, I was praying she'd get a B sometime in her life just to get over it. You know what I mean? And, right. yeah. and the the stress I saw her go through was phenomenal. You know, I wanted to ask you because I, you and I, I went to school, high school, a while ago. Uh, I won't say how long ago I went, but <laughs> a lot further than you did. I think Lincoln was president. Do you think that 
because it was very, very different for a multitude of reasons. But do you think there are more stresses on students now than there was even 20 years ago, 10 years ago? Uh, you know, are we just more aware of it? Oh, I think both, but definitely it's different now because what has changed is what I call the achievement culture that we're in, in education. And, you know, when you're in a culture of any kind, it's, it's a, you know, it's like being a fish in water. You don't really mm. recognize the water around you, but it influences everything that you do. And we're in an achievement culture where it's influencing, you know, how educators educate. It's influencing how parents parent. It's influencing how students, you know, are learning. And it's been detrimental, uh, ultimately, is, is, is kind of the end result. Because what the achievement culture that we've created over the past couple of decades is a data-driven one. So students are data points now. They are their grades, their GPA, their um, SAT, ACT scores, their, their class ranks, their whatever awards they get, their whatever college they get into. And they know it. You know, they know this and parents know it, too. So it's created this check the box mentality. It's made learning not fun. I haven't come across a student who's like, yes, I love school. Yes, I love to learn in a very, very long time. Um, So that, I think, is what has fundamentally changed. And that and, and from a parenting standpoint, the achievement culture has driven what, you know, excuse me, what we refer to as helicopter parenting. Right. Yes, I've met a few of those. <laughs> yes, yeah. So we've become, we're, we're micromanaging because we're so highly invested. And we as parents are incredibly stressed over our children's success and well being. So it's this, um, it's just this self propelling bad situation we've gotten ourselves into, which is creating stress, I think, overall. I mean, teachers as well are in this um, situation. You know, I I agree. I think the data-driven environment that schools live in now do cause a lot more stress. You're right. Students are very aware of it. I'm shocked that, you know, know, I I dealt a lot with the um, the – the top of the schools because I was involved in a STEM program, which is science, technology, engineering, and math for anyone doesn't know what STEM is. So we, so the more successful, the higher students tended to navigate their way to that program. I was shocked that they all knew what their rank was in the school. (laughs) How do you know that? We all know. Why do you know? I mean, it's on their mind. It's what matters to them. I mean, and it it matters to them because it matters to their parents, because it matters to the colleges. And that's sort of the the process. And and I got involved with um, the college board and with SAT and ACE and all the different things. I had a very global view of uh, my school. And I was also surprised that the number of AP courses you were taking mattered. And students were all so very aware of this. How could you not be stressed? And I thought that, okay, part of the problem is having all this knowledge and that that I did not have when I was in high school. There was no way for me to know my ranking unless I went and sorted out and 
to be honest with you folks, I really didn't care that much, but um, I was a jock in high school. Um, do you think that knowledge and the reason they, they had that knowledge is because it's accessible through technology. Um, do you think that technology has caused overall more stress on students personally or academically? I, I would say it's a mixed answer. I mean, I think there's some definite positives to technology, mm -hmm. but there are some really severe, serious drawbacks. Um, so personally, I think a lot of it depends on um, the mindset of the individual using it. So if we have students who are lonely or experiencing a lot of overwhelm or anxiety or have mental health issues, certainly um, access to technology, particularly too much of it, can make a problem even worse, exacerbate it. Um, I think from the, but the other side of that is, and especially at a time when we've been pretty much in our homes and isolated for the past year, there have been wonderful opportunities given to our kids through technology, their ability to connect even when they couldn't be in person. Um, the ability for us to continue education, a, you know, even when we couldn't be in classrooms. I mean, those are positives. The problem is, like, from the academic standpoint, what what the students learned over the past year, which they had already kind of figured out, but it, they took it to the next level. Um, cheating is just, it is a norm. <laughs> it is a norm in education today. And, and it's a norm because it's accepted. And the students look at it as, because they, they will tell me very frankly, oh yeah, I'm doing that to cheat, or this is how I, this is how I cheat. And they, they may have standards, so they may have levels of like, well, I'll cheat on the homework or the whatever, but I won't cheat on the big test. So they do sometimes say, you know, well, no, I won't do that. Um, but it's accepted because it's part of this achievement culture where what matters, it's not the learning, it's the checking the box that I completed the assignment, I got the A, I did the thing. Um, and that is pervasive. It is, it is just pervasive. And technology has definitely contributed to that cheating culture. I taught research classes. Oh. My very first class I taught was plagiarism. And I used to tell them, if you can get past me that I can't tell that you cheated and plagiarized, you're good to go. <laughs> good luck with that. And and they tried. They You know, they tried. Uh, I had mixed feelings about it also. I, I thought, OK, there's a lot of information out there. And I, I, I thought technology is a great tool as long as you use it correctly. Um, but. I also thought that, okay, if you're innovative enough to get around all of that, all the work you put into that, <laughs> getting around of actually you doing the job that was set in front of you, why don't you just put that energy into And when I showed them how easy it was to use the technology the correct way, cheating came down a little, the plagiarism came down just a bit. I'm sure when they left my class, it went right back up. <laughs> part, of it, part of it too is that, you know, our kids are getting technology younger and younger. And that's yeah. part of, I think, more the negative 
side of things because we're looking at brain development issues here. So I'm a huge fan of the wait till eighth campaign, which is, you know, just hold off on giving your kid the smartphone until eighth grade. Hmm. And, and there's a reason for that. Around eighth grade is about the time that the, from a cognitive development standpoint, that um, a student's brain is becoming more like an adult brain. It can think abstractly, hypothetically. Um, it's not so black and white, not so linear um, in its thinking. And when younger kids, you know, before eighth grade are, you know, there's just, there is no way to protect your kids 100% from seeing things that they shouldn't see. You know, right. so exposure to, you know, sexually explicit content or violent contact, content, um, content or bad language, you know, when they're real little. That, you know, there are consequences to that in, in, in our kids' well-being, um, their, their mental health and, um, you know, that, that worries me probably more than anything. And I wish as parents that we could all collectively, because I see pockets of parents do this, but collectively say, you know, we need to treat giving a kid a smartphone like we do um, teaching them to ride a bike with training wheels or, or letting them get a driver's permit. Um, we don't just say, here's the keys to the car, have at it, get on the freeway. You know, there is a process and there is a you know, back and forth about how to manage it. You know, what's safe, what's not safe. You know, you and I are on the same page. My daughter got her cell phone in eighth grade. Yeah. Uh, and and part of it is her mom's a teacher. I'm a teacher. My wife teaches uh, at elementary school and I teach high school. So we see, <laughs> I, I also was an elementary and preschool teacher. I worked my way all the way through the uh, ages. So we gave our daughter her first cell phone uh, when she was in eighth grade. And f a lot of it for those reasons. And a lot of it for the reasons you brought up in your book. You talk a lot about a lack of life skills and that how they are the cause of stress on students. And that directly relates to their readiness to have a cell phone. You know, I've seen students that plan on becoming engineers. They're really bright students and they don't know how to use a simple tool I literally had to teach a kid how to use a, you know, a screwdriver the right way. I, I just looked at him like he had two heads. And this kid is going <clears> to <throat> fix the planes I fly in. <laughs> what, I know what's number one on my list as far as life skills. And, and it's not cell phones, um, only because they're so prevalent that kids learn from other kids. But I wanted to ask you, what kind of, of skills are you speaking about in your book, the life skills that, that that the kids don't know and that cause them a lot of stress? Well, I mean, it's really just any age-appropriate um, responsibility. It's that, it's that understanding that, you know, you are this age, you live in our home, in this household, and we all share responsibilities here. And so whether it be, um, you know, emptying garbage cans or you know, doing something around the dinner table, setting the table, clearing the table, loading the dishwasher, um, you know, mowing the lawn, anything that laundry is a huge one, anything that, you know, that they age appropriately can do. We're not always putting what I'm hearing more and more from students and parents is, well, they're so busy. 
Mm. Where they're, you know, they're so stressed out. I don't want to, you know, they kind of get that donkey on the edge sort of vibe about them. It's like, I don't want to push them because I don't want to deal with the fallout of that. And so as parents, we've sort of backed off, I think, a lot on those just family responsibilities, which a lot of people call chores. I just call them responsibilities because I think that's what they are. And then, you know, even um, personal and academic responsibilities of, you know, if, if a parent is checking the, the school portal for their child and keeping the calendar for the child and doing all these things, you know, taking the stuff to school, that's not teaching our kid to be responsible for themselves. And ultimately, the message we're sending to our kids is um, you can't handle this. I'm going to have to help here. And you do that enough and our kids start to believe it. And then that, in, that increases their self-esteem. They feel kind of helpless and worthless. And then they just kind of own that, you know, ah, I can't do that. And then they go off to college and become the college roommate that drives everybody crazy because they don't pick up after themselves and that kind of thing. So I, I kind of see it as there are just so many um, areas where we're not giving our kids the control over their lives in a way that we probably should to show them they can handle it. Do you think that's because we have this, uh, it's a natural aversion to seeing our, our kids fail at something. Oh, we hate it. <laughs> oh, and, and, and so I always used to tell people, let your kid fail in a padded room. <laughs> you know, they got to experience that. Um, that failure in order to learn it. It's the greatest teacher. It is, you know, stupid hurts. Um, it's, I know I got lots of scars. One of the, see, the biggest conversation I had about life skills with kids always came down to the same thing. And that was time management. These kids are, I mean, it's their brain is not developed yet. They haven't had the experience that I have. And I understand that. But, man, they, they were all over the place. They just had no time management skills. And that's why we feel they're so overwhelmed and so stressed out. They're not doing any more than we are. No. The only thing is, is that they are feeling this onslaught of stresses because of the things they have to do. And if they're a good kid and they're high achieving, they're going to be more stressed about that because they, they know they got to get it done. Right. And, and they procrastinate and that ends up being, again, causes more stress because they don't have that time management, that prior, you know, the ability to prioritize and plan, which mm -hmm. is always, I, I swear that is always where I start with a student because none of them come to me with good time management. I mean, I think some kids naturally have that inclination. Right. But I think it's a really small percentage. I think the majority of our kids, that is just not something that comes naturally. Yeah, and that's why one of the things I worked on with them was that. And part of that had to do with what was going on around them. You know, I know as a high school teacher, teenagers, <laughs> besides being certifiably insane, uh, were constantly worried about what other teens are thinking about them. Um, and so they're overwhelmed with that, and that takes them off their schedule. And, and, and I always told them, yeah, get involved in sports, get involved in theater, get involved in a lot of things. But sometimes I felt bad because what the other teens have were doing would take them off of their academics and that would cause them more stress. 
what do we do to alleviate that stress? Is there anything, is there anything we can do to alleviate that stress? I mean, so it's, it's, there's nothing to make it go away because it comes from our, from brain development again. So we, we have a social brain as human beings. And so there's this intense, um, drive in our brain to connect with other people. I mean, it's part of why we've survived as long as we have. So we are driven to be connected. In adolescence, it's particularly acute. So starting around that middle school age, that is that supersedes almost everything, peers. You know, how am I accepted in this group? That is the group they want to be accepted in. Um, so I think it's important to just kind of recognize that when you feel um, ostracized or left out or isolated in any way, the brain actually interprets that as physical pain. Mm. So it is to be avoided. And so that's part of what is driving our kids to be so focused on belonging. Um, and the other piece of it is there's something that happens during adolescence that's, um, I mean, we all experience this, but it's, it's really heightened during adolescence, a spotlight effect where students, um, you know, or adolescents, I should say, have this belief and this feeling that everybody is watching them all the time and they are constantly being judged and evaluated. And the irony is, of course, that if every student has that um, feeling that they're being watched, that really means that everybody's just really paying attention to themselves. Right. Um, so it's it's not as much of an issue as they they make it out to be. But so one of the things that can help is to explain the spotlight effect to adolescents or to anybody. Once you know that your internal um, thoughts about being watched and evaluated aren't reflected in the reality of what's happening, we actually can, um, it actually reduces our stress and we can perform better and we can manage situations much better when we're in that frame of mind. So a conversation that I recognize what you're feeling and you think that everybody is is talking about you or everybody is focused on you is not necessarily true. Right. It's a normal feeling, and but it's stressing you out for not a good reason. It's just, it's, I hate to say it's just in your head. Kids hate when you say that. Hey, it's just in your head. But it is, some of it is just imagined. And, and it, is, it's, it comes out of their thinking too. And the thinking in an adolescent's brain at that time um, especially nowadays, the, the self-talk is super critical, particularly for like our more perfectionistic students. It's brutal inside these heads, you know? Yeah. And so one of the things you can help your, your child with is to say, you know, if they're saying, you know, everybody's gonna be talking about me or I, you know, somehow they, they feel like they're being judged negatively about something they did. Well, what would you tell a friend who was worried about this? And you know, they, they say exactly the right thing and they mean it, but it is the complete opposite of what they're telling themselves in their own head. So they're not being a very good friend to themselves. And that is something that can be practiced, but they have to kind of first make that connection. Well, that's so right on because I've said exactly those words to kids. So I like, again, you and I are on the same page. <laughs> I say, you know, what would you tell a friend? Why don't you give yourself a break? It's, it's, they would be telling you the same thing. All right. You know, one of the things you wrote in your book that I thought was just great was, and I'm going to quote you now, as you've been instructed on every flight before takeoff, 
In case of loss of of in cabin pressure, put on your own oxygen mask before helping others. I thought that was very insightful. Please tell us what you meant by that. Well, I mean, there's just an incredible amount of psychological um, and physical fatigue that can be associated with helping other people. Um, and it can come at the cost of our own personal well-being. And I, I can't imagine there's a parent out there who hasn't experienced this at some point, at some, you know, to some degree. Um, so if, if we're constantly prioritizing others, which is very well-intentioned, we do it because out of love and care and concern. So all good. Um, It eventually can come at a cost of other things. So perhaps our job, our marriage or other relationships and our own mental health. So I, you know, I got to the point where I was definitely feeling like I was a little stretched a little thin and my stress was high because of that and felt like maybe people were taking a little bit of advantage of me. Um, And my goal was to always show up as my best parenting self, which is a good goal. Um, But I wasn't being able to do that. I was, you know, becoming short and, um, you know, like I said, a little resentful. And that didn't feel like my best parenting self. And I kind of had to redefine what that was. It's not necessarily doing everything for everybody, but, you know, being there when I needed to be there being supportive more on the periphery and, you know, taking a little bit of a step back and putting some of the responsibility back on other people to care for themselves. Um, So setting those reasonable limits, I called it becoming selfish. So, but I explained it to my kids. It's like, you know, if I'm in the kitchen making dinner and you want a glass of water and you ask me to get it for you, I'm not going to do that. Yeah. You can do, but it was just a pattern we had gotten gotten into. And when I had those kind of direct conversations, I said, "You know, I want you to look at my calendar. So this is this is my week. So when you ask me to drop something, you know, you expect me to drop something. Sometimes it makes me feel kind of resentful because I have other things I need to do. And just having the conversation and kind of cluing my kids into that I was a person too with a life made a huge difference because now they say things like, hey, if you wouldn't mind, if you have time, if this works out for you, could you blank? And I'll tell you what, that makes all the difference in the world to me because it's like, yeah, because of the way you asked, I'm much more likely to do it and there's no resentment. Yeah, you know, (laughs) that's so true. Uh, at, At some point, we have to tell our kids, you know, do it yourself. <laughs> uh, I, it's, it's, I always said it's the way we define ourselves. Uh, you know, number one, I'm a dad. Number two, I'm a husband. Number three, I'm a teacher. Number, it's those five, top five things. But you're a person, too. And if you're stressed out, you don't take care of your own self first and your own stress first you can't help anyone else which is why they like you said in your book put on your own oxygen mask first you can't help anybody else if if you're out of breath and you can't even speak well if you're so stressed out you become less of a help to your students this has been a huge issue this past year where self-care is at the forefront i mean you you know it's it's everywhere. How to you know how to self care? How to self care? Because people are so overwhelmed. It has been a lot for 
for parents, you know, between work and kids, maybe kids at home, maybe young, you know, it has just been a lot. And I, I think that's why this message has been so strong this past year is you have to first take care of yourself or you just aren't going to be able to make it to the finish line with all this other stuff. Yeah. And, and, and a lot of respect goes out there to all those parents taking care of themselves who also happen to be teachers yeah. <laughs> like my wife, because they were in a, this, this last year was um, let's see, how do I put this politely? A, uh, <laughs> I don't want to use the phrase I normally use. Let's call it a circus. Um, <laughs> it's a, it's a show. <laughs> and, yeah. Exactly. And it's been very, very challenging. So if you didn't take care of yourself first, your kids are going to suffer, too. So if you're out there, read that book and read that section on there. Uh, one of the other things I wanted to talk to you about, I, I know we're going a little long, but like I said, this is near and dear to my heart. And you brought this up and we have this discussion almost every time we talk about stress across the board. I don't care what age you are. I don't care what your situation is, but it's about how sleep affects us. And in your book, you talk about how sleep deprived our kids are. God, I've seen it. I look at a kid when he comes into my classroom. I said, how much sleep did you get? Uh, I don't know. I slept like two hours. Why do you think that's okay? <laughs> no, is that totally due to the stress they're under or are they just playing games at night? You know, I know they do a lot of technology, but I know it, is, it can't just be due to the game. It has to be due some a little bit to the stress. Can you tell us some of the negative impacts this is all having on them, especially young people? Yeah, all the negative impacts are, I think of sleep as being foundational. I mean, if you want to improve all the other things, um, sleep is where you start because it's what gives you sort of the uh, the energy the the bandwidth so to speak to deal with all the hard things that you're trying to deal with so lack of sleep which our kids are probably there's the national sleep foundation recommends uh, eight to ten hours for our teens and they get about four to six so hugely sleep deprived and they're mo more emotionally volatile um, you know, they, they struggle more with self-regulation. They get sick more because their immune system is being compromised. They're prone to accidents and injuries. And just think about our driving kids. Um, and they're poor learners because it impacts their, you know, ability to focus and concentrate and their attention, you know, isn't as strong as it should be. And there's even there's even research that looked at some kids who um, with less sleep were functioning at two grade levels below where they should. So, I mean, and that's a temporary fluctuation, but just think of the kid who stays up all night and crams and then tries to take a test. They're underperforming for sure. And sleep is where, you know, and I, this is one of the things I think is kind of game changing for students to know. Sleep, I consider sleep studying because that's where um, learning happens because memory is consolidated during sleep. So anything they learned and they were exposed to during the day while they're sleeping, their brain is working to figure out where that needs to get connected to existing knowledge. Hmm. And so if you study, you know, after school or before bed, and then you go to sleep, that is actually helping to consolidate that. And you're smarter about whatever it was you're studying after sleep. So it's hugely important. They don't, you know, and, and you said, 
you know, the stress impact them getting lack of sleep. I, I certainly think it does. And part of that too is a lot of students will study in bed. And one of the things I tell them is no, 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 any place but your bed. Um, because if students are stressed out or overwhelmed by their work, their schoolwork, and they do that in bed, the body remembers that association. It has learned that bed is school, which is stress and this kind of thing. So when they go to go to sleep at an unconscious level that they're not even aware of, it's signaling their brain to be stressed. And so they may um, have trouble falling asleep or they may wake up in the middle of the night and not be able to go back to sleep. So, or they might sleep, but the quality is highly degraded. Um, so all that is important. And one other thing that you, because you mentioned screens, the, the adolescent brain, it works against them here as well, because melatonin, which is the hormone that makes us sleepy, um, it, once puberty hits, it starts getting produced later. So about two hours later. So when my brain gets all, you know, melatonin up and I get sleepy around nine, our adolescence, it's more like 11 o'clock or, or 12 o'clock. So their body biologically is not giving them that sleepy message until later. And then they exacerbate that by being on screens, which emit the blue light, which then um, you need about 30 to 60 minutes of no blue light exposure from screens before your brain will start producing the melatonin. So they're, you know, kind of making the situation worse when they're on their screens later at night. Well, those are really good points. Uh, especially about the screen and the physiological changes due to ages. And I think one of the, the, the smartest things, I think you're right, one of the smartest things we can do to help our kids is say, your bed is for sleeping. Mm -hmm. Make that association. Once they want, understand it, though, yeah. they, they actually, because when I first say it to them, they're like, I'm not giving up studying in my bed. But when they understand the why, <laughs> right. They're much more willing to do it. Yeah. A little explanation goes a long way. I mean, it, it helps them to understand what just not, first of all, laying down the law for no particular reason. And we're, we're trying to help them. So, and you know what? That That's finally what I really wanted to talk to you about is, and uh, I, of course, again, I don't want to go too long, but I wanted to ask you, how do we reassure our students sleep is one of them but we sure are over especially our overachieving children uh that first of all we are okay they're okay <laughs> and that we are proud of them it it comes up that they're they're they feel like they're being judged and i think that's part of the problem how do we reassure them that we are proud of them they're doing good yeah, and, and this is a bigger problem than I think parents realize until it kind of blows over um, or blows up in their face. And that is that, you know, sometimes we think we're communicating that we're proud of them, that we're okay with getting the B's or the C's, that, you know, the world is not going to end. Mm -hmm. And in our kids' mind, it's they have no idea. They think we care so much and that we're going to be disappointed in them mm -hmm. and they're letting us down. Um, and this is, so that's miscommunication and misunderstandings that happen because we're not, we're making assumptions about what's in other people's heads. So parents right from the start can just have those conversations with their kids 
um, even if it's through writing. So if you have a kid who just will not kind of engage in that kind of thing, just write them a letter, put it under their pillow or someplace where just they will see it so that you're, you're starting a conversation, even if it's, you know, a little differently. And the, the parent, the superpower of the parent is, you know, we, again, we're in this achievement culture, so we're kind of driven to do a lot of stuff to make our kids be successful. But the, the thing that is most protective to our kids from their mental well-being, from their, from their long-term success, if we want to really look at that, is that we show up and we are warm and we are supportive and we are respectful of them and we kind of engage with them in what's called the authoritarian, or I'm sorry, authoritative, the opposite of authoritarian, the authoritative parenting style where um, it's a collaborative, you know, back and forth where the parent is in control. So there is structure, but very high warmth. And when, when kids, you know, this is, this is what drives motivation. So when kids feel seen, when they feel loved unconditionally, not because they, they're smart and not because they got the A, but because they are them, when we are communicating that to them, that is, that's just everything. It's priceless. Yeah. That's everything. And, and as a warning to all the parents out there, children don't have a sense of humor. <laughs> <laughs> My daughter um, was a very high achieving young lady. And she would literally get a 98 on, you know, something like an AP biology or AP chem test. For those of you who don't, don't know, advanced placing chemistry is probably one of the hottest courses you can take. And she would get a 98. And jokingly, I would say, what happened to the other two points? Ha ha. She thought I was serious. Kids don't have a sense of humor. <laughs> Always reinforce the first thing is that you're proud of them and that they're doing really well and uh, make sure that they understand that. And I think what you said, leaving them notes, leave them a post-it note on their pillow or something like that. Yeah. You know, those are really just great ideas. And um, you had a lot more of them in your book. And I'm I'm encouraging everyone to to read the, the disintegrating student if, even if you don't have students, it's it's an interesting read. <laughs> so I think you should find out what's going on in the world. I want to thank you. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, pleasure. I love talking about this. As, as do I. And, and, and I love finding solutions to this. And I think that's um, where you guys come in. I'm just a guy that asks questions. You know, I, I had these questions throughout the years of being a teacher. Well, how do I fix that? And for everyone else, you have to remember students, children, our students, our children, high achieving or not, are human beings. We're not, teachers are not making furniture. It's a very strange business. Uh, we're trying to teach them math to everyone who has a brain and, a, and figures out things in a different way. So those, those stresses that they're feeling all very personal and can be very different. So reading a book like yours really gives us some insight and maybe some tips and tools and techniques and how to deal with some of this stuff. So again, thanks for taking the time to talking with us today. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, And by the way, everybody, I want to remind you, you can find uh, Dr. Janelle's book on Amazon. It's not out yet. 
I would pre-order it. Uh, and you, all you have to do is go to JeanineJeanneau.com or look on Amazon. It's up there. And I understand you're involved in Peachtree Psychology also. I am. That's where the balanced student, my coaching, um, right. coaching comes. And so if you go to peachtreepsychology.com, you'll also find out some uh, some more information. And obviously, it's got to be in Georgia because by law, everything in Georgia has to have the name Peach in front of it. So, <laughs> and I love Georgia. I love, I'm a biker and I love riding through Georgia up in the hills. So I want to again thank our guest, uh, Dr. Janot. Guys, Peachtree psychology.com or janinejano.com and I want to thank her for being here. This has been your host. Thanks for joining us again. This is Will Heckman. I want to thank you all for um, for following this podcast. Don't forget to send in those comments and reviews. I love hearing from you guys. And remember, go on stress.org, look for Mismatch, our new documentary. Remember that your support helps us to keep making these podcasts, those documentaries and everything else we do possible. And I want to remind everyone, just as stress is different for each of us, there is no one stress reduction or management strategy that is right for everyone. So that means you need to join us next time because we're going to explore more stress management strategies and insights. And remember to visit again at stress.org. There you can gather a lot of information and techniques and tools to live a healthier, happier, and a longer life. And I hope the information you heard today from Janine and myself will help you find contentment. Good day, everyone. <laughs>